Selwyn Hughes, a devotional writer, he, he makes the observation that it's, it's his impression that many Christians today are kind of preoccupied with learning about themselves and not so much learning about God. And he gives evidence, if you went and asked the manager of a Christian bookstore, what is your best sellers? Uh, he would not tell us that people are snapping up copies of God's glory in Isaiah or, or stuff like that. No, they're going to grab stuff like uh, how to have a better self-image, how to manage your money, and, and, and things like that. How to heal yourself inner and, and these type self stuff. Well, that has a place. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we would learn more about God. That's where our focus needs to be. Knowing God better. John Lancaster, minister in Cardaff, South Wales, he says uh, in an article titled, Where on Earth is God? He says, in today's church, we are far too man-centered and not God-centered. You see, it's no accident that when we look at, open up the Bible, Genesis 1-1. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God. And that's where the focus always needs to be. That's the way it started. You see, if God is not our primary focus, everything else is going to become out of focus. So he really needs to be our focus. Take your Bibles and turn with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 15 and 16. Here Paul is coming to the close of his letter to, first, to Timothy, and he puts a mighty focus on who God is. So let's stand as we read our two verses this morning. In verse 14, he had encouraged Timothy to keep the commandment, God's word, without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And that's our prayer, so please be seated. Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer of Paul. Now, notice what Paul says. He says, he, God, is the only potentate. Now it comes from a word that means power. It speaks of dynasty. It, it speaks of a mighty prince. And notice the adjective, only. He is the only potentate. That shows God's power is inherent in himself. It doesn't come from anywhere else. He has it. It's part of his nature. He is absolute ruler, sovereign over everything. He has no rivals. Now the prophet Isaiah really gives us profound insight into this aspect of God. And I want you to just turn back to Isaiah. 
and some of the things we find written here about God. Isaiah 37. We're going to look at a number of chapters in Isaiah and just follow with me. First one is Isaiah 37, uh, verse 16. Here Hezekiah is praying unto God. And notice what he says. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. And look at verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand and all that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, only thou only. And then in chapter 40 of Isaiah. Verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Uh, realize he's talking about the stars. God brings them all out, names them. Why sayest thou, o Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. And then in chapter 42 of Isaiah, Verse 5. Thus saith the God, saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. He is a giver of life. And then in Isaiah 43, verse 10. You're my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And then chapter 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Verse 8. Uh, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And then chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou, though thou hast not known me. 
that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Verse 21, same chapter. Tell ye, bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who have declared this from ancient time? Who have told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. And then chapter 46. Verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is none else. I am God. There is none like me. Uh, do we get the thought of what Isaiah is telling us? There's no one like God, is there? Not even close. He is the only potentate, the only God. He's all-powerful. And we have to trust in him. Jesus once had a rich young ruler come up to him and ask, what must I do to be saved? And if you remember, Jesus asked him if he observed this commandment, did that. And he said, yeah, I've done all these since my youth. And Jesus said to him as he looked at him and loved him, he, he said, you lack one thing. You need to go sell everything you have and then come, follow me. And of course, uh, he was sad. And that young man walked away. And the disciples, at that experience, then they turned to Jesus and asked them, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking at them, answered them. He said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. He's powerful. He's strong. You know, sometimes in life we feel really weak. Sometimes we may feel invincible. But I don't care how strong you feel, you can take the strongest person in the world. Just get the stomach flu. You're going to be on your knees, rolling around the ground, dying in agony. It just levels you doesn't matter who you are. You know, it's just amazing how ordinary things can come along and make us feel so weak. And that's why we need God. That's why we need to trust in Him with all our heart and lean not on anything else. Just trust in Him. That's why we need to listen to Jesus when He told Paul, He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, in our struggles and our weakness, that's when Christ and his strength become strong and walks with us. And Paul tells us God is the only potentate. He holds all power. 
Now, as we go back to 1 Timothy, let's look at that next title. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, that's a description we can overlook uh, or not think about it very much, but it really stands out in the Old Testament. Moses in Deuteronomy points out to the people, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Now, now remember, they had seen the ten plagues of Egypt and what uh, God did. You see, in those plagues, God demonstrated that Pharaoh is not all-powerful. God showed them that the gods of Egypt are not all-powerful, but that he is. And that's why Moses says to the people, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10. In Psalm 136, David speaks to this aspect. Psalm 136. Beginning at verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. So there we see that title. Daniel, in the second chapter of Daniel, we find the story of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, most powerful ruler in the world of that time. And Nebuchadnezzar, God gave him a dream one night. And, and it was a dream that troubled him. And he got up the next morning and he knew he had a dream, but he could not remember it. So he called in all his wise men, his magicians, his counselors. And he asked them, tell me my dream. And they said, well, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, I can't remember what it is. I want you guys to tell me what it was and what it means. And, the, and they said, well, no one's never been asked to do that. And the king became angry. And he's going to have them all executed, which included Daniel as one of the wise men and his friends. Daniel went to the commander under the king and asked him, why is the king so hasty? What's going on? And he told him. Daniel went to the king and said, give me some time and I'll tell you. And he went back to his three friends and they prayed and God revealed the dream. And he came back to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, here's what you dreamed and described it exactly and here's what it means. And at the end of that experience, Nebuchadnezzar, the king answered unto Daniel and said of a truth, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. So Nebuchadnezzar gives that title to God of his experience. Now what's exciting 
is this same title is given to Jesus. If we turn to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation 17, verse 14. Here the Apostle John, verse 14, chapter 17, says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then look at Revelation 19. Verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him, upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Dr. MacArthur, he says, the sovereignty of God is the most encouraging and comforting doctrine in the Bible. And I think he's right. Because when we understand the sovereignty of God, it takes anxiety out of life. Because God holds everything. He's in charge of everything. He is never surprised by anything. He is never taken off guard. He molds everything to his purpose. We had a great study in Romans 8 this morning, 20, verse 28, where God will take everything and work it to our good for those of us who love him. That's his promise. So this tells us we don't have to depend on our ingenuity, our own wisdom, our own ability or intellect we just need to trust in God. We just need to trust in the one who's coming back on a white horse, who wears the name faithful, true, word of God, the one who has the vesture written with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who we trust. So God is the only powerful, potentate, powerful. King of kings, Lord of lords. And then Paul tells us, as we look in Timothy, he is the possessor of immortality. 
That means not subject to death. Uh, we, we are so subject to death. I mean, we just open up the newspaper, we turn on the TV, and what do we read about? Death. I mean, every day, everywhere, it, it's there. Whether it be the, uh, an obituary of a person who's died of old age, or the news of the tragedy down in Roseburg, Oregon, it's always there. It permeates our world. Genesis, Adam was told by God, you can eat of all the trees in the garden but one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that one, you're going to die. And here we are. Death. It's here. But only God possesses immortality. And notice that we see that adjective again. Who only hath immortality. Only God has it. In other words, he possesses it. All immortality comes from him. Uh, that word means... Uh, Deathless. It tells us God is incapable of dying. It's not even a possibility. And we see that all through the Bible speaks of how he is everlasting. That he is the fountain of life. Jesus in John 5 said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given it to the Son to have life in himself. He's a God of immortality. And that tells us when we commit to him, he holds us in his hand, in hands of immortality. That's why Easter is so important. So Easter is vital. If you take Easter away, we're not here today. We're all about Easter. Easter is a demonstration that Jesus has power over death. He's a resurrected Savior. And because of that, we're trusting him with everything. No other religion has that. Only God has immortality and he gives it to us. Then Paul tells us, God is the one who dwells in light unapproachable. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor, power, Everlasting. Amen. John Phillips says, This is the one who is awesome in presence, inaccessible, bathed in fearful light. Uh, Dr. MacArthur simply says, This is just simply the holiness of God. And that's so important. You know, we, we live in a time of chaos.
casual familiarity with God. I mean, we're just so casual about who God is. And the danger is we become so casual about God and, and, and the things of God, and we don't realize who, His holiness and who He really is. Tell you what, Old Testament priests, they were very mindful of God's holiness. Before they stepped into the holy place, they put on proper clothes, they washed their hands and their feet. Because if they failed to do that, the minute they stepped in, they dropped dead. You only made that mistake once. There's nothing casual in what they did. Dwelling in the light. Uh, Paul was writing from personal experience. Remember his testimony on the Damascus Road. Jesus confronted him. And Paul was immersed in a blinding light from heaven. He knew how bright it was. I think there's going to be some believers that worship in dark sanctuaries that are going to be surprised at the brightness of heaven. It's a whole different light. You know, there's different qualities of light. There's incandescent light. I love incandescent light bulbs. They're taking them away from us. John has a good stockpile. Yeah. Is that right, John? Okay. Yeah. There's fluorescent lights. They're not as good. LEDs, they're getting there. There's the sun. But I tell you what, the light of heaven and God's glory cannot be compared to. And we don't even realize it until we step into it. Now I think every day we're going to just stand in awe at the, the light factor, how it's so different in God's presence. Timothy lived in a godless city. Ephesus. It was uh, the place, the center of the worship of the goddess Diana. They had a huge temple dedicated to her there in Ephesus that people, thousands would come from all over the world to that temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon that currently stands in Athens, Greece. It was huge. But it was pagan, it was immoral. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, remember, look at the one who dwells in light that no one can approach, who is holy. No one can see. And interesting, when you look at Isaiah's vision, that when he looks at the throne of God, and he sees the mighty seraphim around it, that they take two of their wings and cover their face, and yell out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They didn't even look at him. 
He's there on the throne. No man can see God in all his essence. Moses tried. In Exodus 33, Moses said to God, Show me your glory. God told Moses, You can't see that. There's no man can see me and live. But here's what we'll do. And Exodus 33 tells us that God placed Moses in the cleft of a rock. Put his hand over him. And walked by him. And he allowed Moses to see his backside. That's all Moses could see. That's it. And that's why Jesus is so important to us. Without Jesus, we could not approach God. Without Jesus, we never know God. He's God in the flesh. At the Last Supper, remember in John 14, Jesus tells them, I'm going to go away. Prepare a place for you. Trust in me. And Thomas brings up the question, how can we know the way? And I love the answer of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. And we know that verse so well. But it's the next verses we really need to read. Because Jesus goes on to say, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. And then Philip pipes up. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you? Yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? That's profound. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. And that's as close as we're going to get, and that's as close as we need. Just look at Jesus. He's enough. Tell you what, we get, sometimes I get just, you know, fed up with stuff going on. Turn on the news and, man, look at that. Hear stuff coming out of Washington, D.C. Man, just enough to frustrate a guy. See this taking place. Maybe go to work and something going on there. Maybe at home or, or whatever. But you know what we need to do when that happens? When I see those kind of things going on, I just have to look at the one who's on the throne. 
and go into his presence and seek him out and find his grace for my time of need. And quit looking at the other stuff. That makes a difference. Like the story of a English nobleman, 17th century England. He was walking along and saw a little commoner, a peasant. He decided he's going to have some fun. So he stopped the peasant and he said, Where are you going? The peasant answered, I'm going to church, sir. And so the nobleman asked him, Well, what are you going to do at church? He says, I'm going to worship God. And the nobleman said, well, tell me, is your God, is he a big God or is he a small God? The peasant said, he's both. And the nobleman said, what do you mean? How can he be both? He said, well, he's so big that the heaven of heavens can't contain him. But he's small enough to live in my heart. And off to church he went. And Anthony Collins, the nobleman, he said, I learned more from that peasant about God than any other source. Isn't that great? We have a mighty God. And yet chooses to live in our hearts. And maybe this morning you need to come before him and say, Lord, I need what you can do. I need you in my life, my heart. You come.